Good morning, Redeemer. Stay standing. Uh, it's great to be with you, and I'm grateful for the privilege uh, to share from God's Word and to be back uh, home with my people. And uh, as, as uh, Paul and Matt, I don't know who said it, but I am the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, which is the denominational seminary of the PCA. That means that Covenant is uniquely charged with raising up the next generation of pastors, ministry leaders, and counselors to serve our congregations, but also far beyond the PCA into other ministry um, traditions and all across the globe. Uh, and we're grateful for the partnership uh, that Redeemer has with the seminary. You have now become one of our partner churches, and I'm grateful for that work. And it's not just about financial resourcing, it's also about uh, the resource of prayer and the story of grace. One of the things I'm excited about is the story of grace that God wove into my life uh, and my wife's life, and that God wove into our lives together is now being woven into the story of Covenant Seminary. And that's a great blessing, not only for us, but for the church. Um, and so I just want you to know what God is doing here is reverberating uh, in wonderful ways, and I'm grateful for that privilege. As Paul and Matt also reminded us, this is the first Sunday in Lent, and Lent is but one part of the Christian calendar, but it's perhaps the most least well understood right? We, we struggle with understanding what Lent is. Many of us think of it in, in a sort of mechanistic way. It's this thing in which, I don't know, other people abstain from certain indulgences like chocolate and sugar and soda. You're probably not doing that, but, right, that's what you're supposed to do during Lent, and we wonder why. Because sometimes we think, well, it's, it's about um, sort of a test of my will uh, in which I can demonstrate to God that I'm faithful or, or maybe even uh, more erroneously, that, that it's a way in which I work off the bad things in my life as sort of a pathway to meriting God's favor. I want to encourage you this morning that neither of those things have anything to do with Lent. Lent is, is not a demonstration of our will, and nor is it a pathway to meriting God's favor. But the purpose of Lent is really more about a spiritual diagnostic test in which we examine our hearts, that, that we get our hearts recalibrated to what truly, or should I say who, truly satisfies us. It's not, it's not about what we do, but it's about discerning what Christ has done for us and making sure that our lives are being calibrated in discipleship of Christ. And so, yes, it does mean stepping away from the things that don't satisfy us, deepening in our resistance against temptation, but more importantly, it's about our journey to Christ. It's about our journey to the cross. It's about seeing Him more clearly. It's about tasting Him and His grace more deeply, which brings us to our passage here in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. As we think about our own journey against temptation… We need to remember that, that Jesus went there first, and where we often fail, He succeeded. And that success was not just a how-to guide, but it was our success story that arms us in the fight that we have against temptation. Let, let's give our attention to God's Word. Verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands that they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here in your triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we not only want to extol your greatness and glory, we want to receive your bounty, the gifts of your grace as they come to us from your word, that you administer to us all of the treasures that are already ours in Christ, that we might not only worship you better, but we might taste you more deeply and fully, that, O oh, Jesus, would you meet us and refresh our souls And the wonder of your grace, all of this in the name of Jesus and the power of your Spirit. And Lord, in the great love of you, Heavenly Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, it's great uh, to be back in San Antonio. And whenever Tara and I make our way back here, even if it's only for a day or a couple weeks like this time, people always ask us the same question, what do you miss most? Uh, what do you miss most? And, and our answer to that question is easy. We miss you the most. Um, we miss our friends uh, who really have become family. San Antonio became, after 19 years, our home and, and our family. And it's no hesitation about what we miss most. But we also miss a few other things, like the food. Um, Trust me, it's awesome here in San, in San Antonio. St. Louis doesn't have anything to offer like what you guys here have every day. And um, that's especially true for the tacos. Tara's already got her tacos. I haven't gotten mine yet. Uh, but the food, the culture, all of the things that, that make San Antonio distinct, of course we miss those things. There's always one more thing we like to talk about that we miss a lot about San Antonio, and that is, you probably already guessed it, H-E-B. If you've never lived anywhere else, you do not know how good you've got it, right? H-E-B is the world's best grocery store. It really is. Uh, it, it just, we love that store. We, we smuggle things back up to, Santa, to St. Louis. We, we stuff our suitcases with tortillas. Um, true stories. Uh, gotten stopped at the, uh, at, the, at the TSA agent with tortillas stuffed in the suitcase. Um, but because we love H-E-B. And when I think back, oh, why do we love this place? Of course, it's the food. But I was thinking about all of the ad campaigns over the years. And I don't know if they still use this ad campaign, but something like 20, 25 years ago, um, H-E-B was the place where you could go home a hero. Do you all remember that? Right? Come to H-E-B because you go home a hero. You can't lose when you shop at H-E-B. Can I get an Amen. Right? You know that's true. 
It's a great store. We always go home heroes. Alas, if life were only like H-E-B. It's not, though, is it? We may come out of H-E-B a hero because we got all the things and all the best ways. But when we journey into life, we stop being those heroes as we bump up against life's battles and, and tribulations and trials and, and the hardships that we experience in this life. We, we stop being heroes, and we end up being dejected. Make no mistake about it, the Christian life is a fight. Although there are some out there who want to lead us to believe that if we just had more faith, we could skip over the trials and tribulations of life, that somehow we could ascend and transcend such burdens, but they're not telling the truth. And that's why it's so important for us to consider Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and what it means for us as the Savior sent from the Father. Jesus came to succeed in all of the ways where we have failed. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was like a second better Adam. Remember Adam in the garden? Not in a wilderness, but in the garden. He failed the test, and he succumbed to temptation. Jesus now has come as the second better Adam, and where as Adam failed, Jesus has succeeded. And just as Adam's failure reverberated throughout all of history, touching every single one of us with sin and tragedy... So Jesus' victory in the wilderness reverberates to all of us who put our faith and trust in Him. And that's what the blessing of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is all about. It's not about just a toolkit in which we can arm ourselves with how to fight against temptation. No, it's a success story. It's a victory story that that arms us with His strength as we go to fight Uh, Well, well, the temptations that that we face in all of our lives. Jesus' journey in the wilderness doesn't exempt us from trial. It doesn't exempt us from temptation. But it does change us as we fight against temptation. It does give us confidence and strength. So in our time together this morning, I want us to go through this passage as we think about our battle against temptation and how Jesus' victory in the desert wilderness changes us. So so first, let's talk about this inevitable journey into the wilderness that we all make. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, verse 1, into the wilderness. And I think if we can say, if Jesus was going into the wilderness, we're probably going to go into the wilderness too, right? The significance of the wilderness is twofold. It's both a place of temptation, as Jesus shows us, but it's also a place of testing. depends on how we're oriented in the wilderness, And what frame we're thinking about is we think about it as the place of temptation. We're thinking about the wilderness as the abode of the evil one. When Satan, this glorious angel himself, rebelled against the living God, he was cast down, the Bible tells us, to the earth. He goes to and fro, Job tells us, throughout the earth. And so, as it were, the whole earth is a kind of wilderness because it's been touched by Satan's power. And that means that we don't just have to go into deserts to encounter the wilderness. There's not just the Chihuahuan desert, right? The world of deprivation. To to be sure, that is a place of temptation, we might say. If you lack food, if you lack water, if you lack shelter, 
But there are also deserts in other places where we experience the influence of the tempter, like the office place, right, where we experience the dysfunction and the inhumanity of many of our workplaces. We sometimes experience this in the desert wilderness of the schoolyard, where we're friendless, lonely, and left to fend to our, for ourselves. We can experience the desert wilderness even in the church, where churches and leaders are not following after the Lord who have succumbed to the, uh, the, 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 the ways of power that are more characterized by the world and not those of Christ, doing damage to the least of these. Right? All of these places. There's no place, in fact, where the tempter is not present. And let's think about those names for the evil one and the place of temptation. He's the tempter, he's the devil, and he's Satan. This passage uses all those terms. As the tempter, he is the one who twists and distorts the Word of God, making it serve His purpose and destroying us with it. As Satan, that's the proper name for the evil one, he is the adversary. He's against us. He is against the Lord. He is against God's purposes for our life. And as the devil, he is the diabolos, the splitter. He is the one who wants to divide the people of God away from the Lord and away from one of us. He wants to divide our first love and take us away. And He wants to divide us from the call and the command that we might love one another. The wilderness is the place of temptation because it is the place of the tempter. But Jesus was led into this place of temptation. Because though Satan wants to shipwreck and stumble or make us stumble in the desert, our God has a different purpose in the wilderness. He wants to use this very same place to test us that we might grow into maturity. Jesus was led into the wilderness. Y'all are studying the people of Israel in the story of Exodus. They too were led out of Egypt and into the wilderness into this place of testing, into this place of trial, into this place of tribulation. And the Bible teaches us that in the midst of all of these wilderness journeys, our God is doing something in our lives. James tells us that we're called to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter, uh, well, trials, temptations of various kinds. Because in these trials, in these testings, we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That the desert wilderness may be the place of temptation, but it's also the place of testing unto maturity when it is submitted to the purposes of our God which is very important for us to think about because sometimes in the desert wilderness we think this is the place where our God is not. No, no. Oh, no. The, the devil may be there, but our God is there too. In fact, our God has led us there. Our God led Jesus there, and our God leads us into wilderness journeys too. But just because we're experiencing temptation does not mean our God has abandoned us in the wilderness. But we're not exempt from temptation. 
right? That there are three temptations that, that come to Jesus in the midst of the wilderness. And if the wilderness can be anywhere, it's not so much about the geographic location as it is the calibration of our hearts. And if our hearts are not calibrated to the purposes and grace of our God, we we can be sure that we're going to succumb to temptation. Thank you, Jesus. His heart was calibrated. But let's think first about the temptations He faced because we face them too. Right? The, The first one, am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? Jesus was hungry. You would be hungry too if you had fasted for 40 days. And we tend to just glance over that. But for Christ to have been able to fast 40 days, that meant that fasting had been a priority of His life for many, many years. You don't just jump from no fasting to 40-day fasting. But at the end of 40 days, you're hungry. And Jesus was in the desert in this season of devotion to the Lord, and He was hungry, and He was longing to be satisfied. And in that moment, the temptation came, and it reminds us that sometimes the temptations that are most severe and prey upon our hearts are those that come along legitimate pathways, right? The path of hunger. Jesus longed to be fed. The question was, when? Would he be satisfied? Not did he need to eat. Not did he need to eat. And so often that's the question where should we long to be satisfied in these ways? Is that okay? Are the longings that we have in our hearts, whether it is for hunger or relationship or purpose, are those legitimate? Yes. But that doesn't mean that they're to be satisfied at this or that particular moment. We succumb to temptation when we think it's impossible for us to live without our immediate needs being satisfied now. That was the temptation. Turn these stones to bread. Right? You satisfy your needs. Don't allow that satisfaction to come from the Lord, but allow it to come according to your power and your plan and your agenda. That's the temptation. Do I have to be satisfied right now, whether it's food or sex or relationship or money? You know the list. Am I satisfied? And then think about the next temptation that comes to Jesus. Am I loved? Verses 5 through 7. Jesus is taken up to the precipice of the temple. And and the adversary, he knows that Jesus has just been baptized. He's just inaugurated his ministry, his public ministry. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. He's heard the words of his heavenly Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And you can hear the tempter. Even as he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, did God really say... That you are well loved. Did God really say that you are beloved? Don't you think you might want to prove that? What would prove this, Jesus? I got an idea. Jump off the temple. That'll make God show himself to you. That'll make God prove it. 
And isn't that the source of so much temptation in our hearts too? Right? God, you're, you're not proving it. You're not showing it. You're not acting it out. I can't see it. I can't see your love. And so I'm doubting your love. You see, the doubt of God's love, friends, is the road to succumbing to temptation. When do we fall prey to temptation? When we think it's not worth believing in God anymore. And there's nothing more powerful to make us believe that it's not worth believing in God anymore than when we feel like He doesn't care about us anymore. God, prove it. When we say to God, prove it, our falling prey to temptation is not far behind. Am I loved? That's the temptation of our heart. Am I satisfied? That's the temptation of our appetites, our our stomachs. But finally, am I significant? Am I important? Do I have a name? Right, That's the temptation of our eyes, and for Jesus' temptation is all too real because the devil is offering him something that will be his. Right, Messianic glory and splendor and the rule of all the nations. He's only asking him to bypass the pathway that his heavenly Father had given to him. Get what's coming to you, but just let's skip over the suffering part. Let's move on to the glory part. Let's move on to the victory lap. Let's skip the suffering and the pathway of the cross, Jesus. And, and oh yeah, by, by the way, I do remember your father, he said that you're beloved, but he also said to save your people from their sins, you're going to suffer. Who wants to suffer? I can give all of this to you right now. I can make you significant. Here's the path. Just follow me. Just bow down and worship me. Just give your life over to me. And in so many ways, right, that's the pathway of sin. Satan cannot offer you anything good that our God has not already promised you. He has nothing to give you. He can only take the promises of our God and allure you along a different path. And what do we call that? A shortcut. Every sin is a shortcut. Every temptation is a shortcut. Every succumbing of our will and turning away from the Lord to get something that we want is literally turning towards something God, our God has already promised us. We're just doing it on our own timetable, our own agenda, our own plan. We just want to get there on our own way, hoping that we can skip over some of the chaos, some of the heartbreak, some of the hardship, all of those things. Aren't you glad Jesus said, get out of here, Satan? Get behind me, Satan. He's going to have to do this one more time because Peter, his disciple, is going to come to him and say, Jesus, you really shouldn't be about this cross business. You don't really need to be following this this suffering story. And then, too, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew the pathway. He knew the journey. 
And he was not interested in concessions or compromises or shortcuts. And friends, when the shortcut becomes appealing to us, when the concession becomes attractive, when the compromise becomes justified, we can be sure that we're falling prey to temptation. It's amazing what we can justify when we don't want to follow the path that our God has given to us, especially when we feel like we need to be important. Especially when we feel like we're not getting what we deserve. Don't you know? Don't you know who I am? Isn't that what we want? Don't you know? As we're going to see, our God does know who we are more than we do. And so let's think about how does Jesus resist these temptations and how does his victory help us? And really, there's two ways in which Jesus gives us strength. First, by modeling it. The first way Jesus gives us strength is by modeling his confidence in the certainty of God's word. Jesus is sure that the word of God is true. And he resists the devil in the confidence of the word of God. And we see it with each one of these temptations. First, to, to the temptation of am I satisfied, Jesus recalls a more certain truth than the truth the devil had highlighted. Because in the case of every hunger, Jesus reminds us that we're to be satisfied by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That, that even in the midst of our hunger, there's a deeper satisfaction upon which we can defend, depend. And it's not the satisfaction of our stomachs, it's the satisfaction of our lives in and through the grace and goodness that our God has provided in His Word. Think, think about it. What, what's more sure than our thoughts? More sure than our feelings? More sure than our appetites? More sure than our demands? The Bible tells us His Word is. His Word is more sure. Because His Word is the bread of life. His Word is the bread of God that speaks to us, not just in the midst of our joys, when we're feeling full to the top and satisfied. But it's just as true when we're not satisfied. It's just as true when we're lonely and dejected and disappointed and frustrated and hungry and depressed. Friends, God's Word is true, and we're to build our lives upon it. God is the one who satisfies us with, with His Word. God is the one who loves us with His Word. In the early service, I was just asking, I was asking the congregation, you know, what is the story of the Bible about? It's about the story of a God who loved His wayward people. That's what it's about. From, from cover to cover, it's the story of our God, how He loved us back from sin, back from our rebellion, back from the tragedy of this broken world. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us. And indeed, this is, this is why Jesus says, you, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because you don't test God to prove something that you already know is true. Jesus knew He was loved. He didn't have to prove it. He didn't have to ask God to prove it. He didn't have to test Him. 
He knew it to be true in the confidence of his word. The devil was wanting him to do something that would show that he had doubted that truth. But why would he doubt something he already knows is true in the confidence of God's word? Am I loved? Yes. Am I satisfied? Yes. Am I significant? Yes. Am I significant? Yes. Because I know what the Word of God tells me. Of all the things our God has made, He's made a lot of things. We we haven't seen the half of them. But of all these things, there is one thing that He said, You are like me. And that's you. Of all the things, there's only one thing that's like Him. And that's us. We are His image. And friends, there is no greater testimony to our worth and significance than what we carry around within us and in the context of our relationships and vocations and families that bears witness to the great worth and significance of who we are. And yet we still doubt it. Francis Schaeffer had a great little book, No Little People, and yet we still struggle to believe that we're just these little people of no account. And we fail to see the glory and significance and splendor that attaches to our being made in God's image. Are we significant? Are we believing the Bible? Are we listening to God's Word? Do we see it? And of course, we struggle to believe God's Word. And this is why it's not enough for us to just be confident in God's Word. Sin has so broken us down that we lack that confidence. And we need something more from Jesus' battle and temptation in the wilderness than a lesson plan. Right? We, we need a victorious Savior. We don't just need to be armed with truth. We need to be secured by His victory. And friends, that's why God led Jesus into the wilderness. Not just to model victory for us, but to give that victory to us. Right? He, he was victorious where we fail. He passed the test where we struggle with, with the test. He, he didn't just cling to the very Word of God because it's the bread of life. Because He knew God loved Him. Because He knew He was significant. No, He is the bread of God. Remember in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Remember in John 3, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. He is the demonstration of great worth and significance. He is the, the firstborn of a renewed creation in which He's bringing all of us in His train. He's leading us in His triumphal procession. Friends, everything Christ did... He did for us, and He brings us with Him. And so it's in and through His victory in the wilderness that He arms us with that strength that we might fight against the temptations in our lives. And so when we fight against, am I satisfied? It's not just about trusting in His Word. It's about trusting in Jesus and seeing in Him our satisfaction. When we think, am I loved? It's not just about remembering what God's Word says. It's about seeing in Christ the gift of love. When we see the question of our significance 
and worth and dignity. It's realizing that our God had become one of us. He put on our flesh, right? He indwelled our being that He might redeem us and reconcile us to our God. How beautiful is that? As we close a story, when I was a junior in high school, we were out for spring football practice drills, and there were a lot of young men out there on the field, practice field, and the coach had one goal, to weed out, right, who didn't really want to be there. And so he lined us all up, got a partner, and we were faced off maybe two or three feet from each other, and, and he put up this drill where you were just supposed to crack each other, right, just just over and over, blow the whistle, and you just hit each other as hard as you could. And why that's a good drill for football, I have no idea. Um, but that's what we were doing. And the guy that I was paired up with, I mean, he was bigger and badder than me. He was, and I wasn't that bad. I was uh, uh, terrible. But he, he was, um, I mean, he was just athletic and strong, and, and, and he was just crushing me. I was longing for this day to be over. And I'm sure that drill must have lasted maybe 15 minutes, but I thought it went on for two hours. And, and finally, the drill was over, went home, you try to recover, and I came back to practice the next day, and I realized he wasn't there. My partner wasn't there, and he must have been more miserable than me. And that day I learned an important lesson, right? The lesson of perseverance. Sometimes all you have to do is just keep showing up. Right? So much of life is about that lesson, the, the key of perseverance, keep showing up in the midst of the trial. And, and yet, as, as wonderful a truth that is, as that is, it's, it's an insufficient truth. Because life isn't an athletic field. It, it's, it's really not about that. Life is so much more complicated because in the midst of, in the midst of life, it's not our wills that give out. Right? How, 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 how much grit do you have? It's our hearts. It's our hearts that give out. When we bump up against fatigue and frustration and disappointment and loss, as we bump up against all these things in the wilderness of temptation, and in those places, our shadowy selves come out, right? And we find ourselves walking away from the Lord, walking towards our demanding hearts, in which we're looking to be satisfied now, wondering if we're loved, looking for love in all the wrong places. And in those places, we seek to become significant on our own timeline. And friends, in those places, again, we don't need more grit. We need something better than grit. We need empowering grace. We need something we can't bring to the table. We need a victorious king who went through the desert wilderness and did what we could not do and that's what Jesus did for us and this passage reminds us because he was victorious and now when we go against those temptations we don't just have a self-help guide we have a substitutionary success story so when we go into the wilderness we're not alone our savior is right there with us He's walking with us, and He's giving us the strength to fight, and not just fight, but, but also win onto a journey of everlasting victory, not secured by us, but secured by Him. Hallelujah. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the gift of Your Son, who is the demonstration of our needs met, and Your love, and our great worth and significance. May we turn away from all temptations and seek to be satisfied solely and alone in You. For it's in the name of Christ we pray it. Amen.